Can we turn back uh, for a little while this evening to Psalm 73 and the uh, book of Psalms in the Old Testament on page 586? And uh, we're going to uh, take a look at this psalm this evening. And it's entitled Drifting from Desire. And uh, what I really love about this psalm is its searing honesty and uh, the fact that uh, uh, Holy Scripture and the Word of God is so blunt and honest and real. And I think that's one of the great lessons before we learn anything else uh, about this psalm is uh, the truth of uh, uh, a real person with real faith in a real position who is really struggling. And uh, if if, if we learn nothing else, then surely we must learn that the Christian life, as we take it and broaden it into our post-cross experience, is going to be one that's peppered with battles and struggles. And the sooner that we confess that and recognize that and share that with others and seek their help and strength, then the stronger we will be. One of the great weaknesses and one of the great uh, challenges of a growing church is that as we grow, you can become um, almost living in a, a shallow experience of the Christian faith uh, because there is lots of people around and we don't get beyond the surface. That's a huge weakness that we need to guard against in our Christian lives. You must find people and you must be in real enough relationships with people with whom you can share struggles and battles and fears and not maintain some kind of stiff upper lip as if you have no problems and no difficulties and uh, no needs spiritually. Because here is a psalm, part of inspired scripture, written by one of the leaders of the praise in Israel, Asaph, uh, around the time of David, uh, who we can clearly see uh, from his uh, remarkable uh, honesty and openness under the inspiration of God, uh, who was drifting from desire and drifting from God. I nearly lost my foothold. My feet had almost slipped. Now, can I just say for a, a, a very short aside, this is the leaders in the church. This is a leader of the praise. Can I uh, remind the leaders in this church of that fact? And can I remind you as people in the church about your leaders, those who have been set over you in spiritual things, that they are not above doubt and fear and turning away from God and battling and struggling. And they uh, need your prayers and did we need one another's prayers as we recognize that. We don't really know anything else about Asaph. Uh, we don't know anything about his life, about his personal life, about whether he was married or uh, whether he had family or whether, where he lived. Or, but we know he was set aside. He would have been of the tribe of Levi and he was set aside to be part of uh, those who led the praise in the temple. And in his life, uh, he found himself looking away from God and uh, looking around uh, at the world around him. There was obviously uh, tensions and strifes and difficulties 
and uh, uh, those who didn't believe were flourishing. It doesn't sound terribly unlike the society in which we live in today. And as he was looking at them, uh, his feet almost slipped because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. In every way, they seemed to be having a great life. And that is what he saw, and uh, he struggled with that. Their lives seemed to be carefree. It seemed to be easy for them. It seemed to be that they could blaspheme against God and God did nothing about it. It seemed that uh, they could uh, question God and say, God, how does God know? Uh, How does the Most High have knowledge? And they could uh, uh, put their fingers up at God, as it were, and, and God would do nothing about it. And it seemed that their lives were easy. They could sleep well at night. They were healthy and strong. They were free from the burdens common to man. Uh, and it's very interesting, even at this point, how irrational his complaint became. You know, he was looking at the world through kind of um, inverted rose-colored spectacles. And he was seeing that those who didn't believe, it seems to be that everything was tremendous. Everything was good and everything was easy in their lives. Now, I don't think that was the case then and it I'm sure it's not the case now. But it, we, can, we can look like that sometimes, can't we? And we can look at those who aren't believing and say, their life is easy. Their life is problem-free. They don't have the weights and the burdens and the struggles and the ethics and the morality and the worship and the truth and the burdens that we seem to have. And he is uh, out of all proportion looking at their lives uh, with a degree of envy and with a degree of longing. And what's interesting is that uh, he sees not just uh, the kind of wealth and ease of their lives, but he also sees their evil. And I never really, never really picked that up before. That, you know, he talks about pride as their necklace, violence, callous hearts, evil conceits, scoffing, speaking with malice, um, and saying all these things And he knows these things, but he's still attracted by it. He's still attracted uh, by their life. And that's an interesting thing for him. Uh, This leader of the praise, this significant um, uh, spiritual man, uh, his his feet had almost slipped and he feels that um, his life and the purity of his life as a believer... Uh, It was a waste of time. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. The same kind of word that's used by Ecclesiastes, the vanity of life. And it's been a waste of time for him to follow his God and to serve his God because it seems that those who don't follow and don't serve are having a much better life and are having much more uh, enjoyable uh, experience. So there's this looking around him and he is drifting from God in his life. But he recognizes that as a heart problem in verse uh, 21. He says, It was when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And immediately we are taken to the heart, uh, the root of the matter for him. And that's great and it's significant and it's important to note at this stage that his drifting from God was a matter of his heart. 
because he had left God out of the equation of his own heart and soul, and his heart atrophied. His heart became hardened and embittered against God. And that embitterment colored everything of his life. And that is such a strong and powerful recognition for us uh, about the importance of dealing with not everybody else's heart, but our own heart before God. And remembering the significance of the forgiveness that we've received and the love of Christ that has been poured out into our hearts so that we follow him and serve him. Because when we stop doing that, when we stop dealing with God at a heart level, this morning at Buclue I preached what I'd preached previously in Camelton, which I'd preached previously in St. Columbus a few weeks ago, but Daniel in the lion's den and how his life, whatever was happening on the ups and downs, was uh, molded by this uh, relentless pursuit of prayer. It's three times a day, this consistent, ritualistic, but real uh, relationship with God, which fixed his dependence on God and his need for God in his life. There's nothing more of a more accurate gauge of our understanding of our own hearts and of our own understanding of our own spiritual lives than our uh, prayer life and our need for prayer and our need for coming to God. Because when we fail to see that and when we fail to deal with our hearts on a day-to-day basis, then what we find is uh, we, we become senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. So we almost, it's like he's saying we become like animals, soulless, as it were, uh, no spiritual dimension to our lives. And that's how, that's how the majority of people who aren't Christians are living their lives. I'm not saying they're bad people uh, in terms of the, you know, the way they live and their basic morality. Uh, they're certainly like us all guilty before God. But I'm saying they're soulless in that they don't have that, sp- they're spiritually dead. You don't have that relationship with God. And it's as if Asaph is saying here, that's what I became again. I became like a brute beast without soul life, without relationship with God. I, I was living simply to satisfy my instincts like a wild animal. You know, just living at that base level of getting up, eating, drinking, laughing, playing, working, going to bed, eating, drinking. And, and that kind of almost thoughtless, soulless existence and simply living at that level. And it was his heart experience because his heart had become grieved and embittered. Nobody else's heart. It was his own. And I do think there's a tremendous power in the Psalms and in the Word of God which consistently reminds us to guard our own hearts spiritually. It's the ongoing, isn't it? It's the ongoing activity of being part of, for example, as we look at the word here, part of the worship ourselves, that we're not just receiving a lecture or a talk on the word of God, but we're, we believe the Holy Spirit is taking of his word and asking us to examine our own, our own lives and our own hearts so that each time we worship, Each time we come to God's Word, each time that we're in fellowship with God's people, there's a sense in which there's a a self-examination going on. There's a a guarding of our hearts and lives before God and seeing and looking at what He's saying. 
And could it be that in our lives at this point, we're looking at the world longingly, looking at the life of those who are not believers longingly, that this is easier. It's hard being a Christian. It's a struggle. It's a battle. Could it be you feel like uh, Asaph that, that you're imprisoned in religious works, coming to church, reading the Bible, praying occasionally, that it's become a ritual that has lost its joy and lost its passion and lost its reality for you? And could it be that your own summary, or could it be that my own summary, uh, might well be uh, one that God in his inspired word has given us, that our feet have almost slipped. Nobody else knows. We look great on the outside. And we say all the right things. And we smile at the right places. And we sing when we're supposed to. But our feet have almost slipped. And we're struggling to maintain our Christian, the reality of our Christian life. We can maintain the shell. That, that's not, at least for a while, it's not that difficult. But the reality of a living relationship with God has become something that has almost left us in our lives. We've almost slipped spiritually. And this, a psalm like this is given to us because God loves us. And he wants us to be alert and aware of this dangerous place to be and to encourage us all to look into our own hearts and to deal with our own hearts and our own needs. And that is really the great challenge for us in our lives, that that, that is what we must deal with. Um, the gospel is about transformation, and it's not about flash, significant, wonderful, whoop-de-doo kind of transformation that uh, makes us attractive and seen in a dramatic way. It's the transformation that deals with the bitternesses of our hearts, the ease with which we uh, allow our hearts to be protected from his change, and we channel that to other people and we leave ourselves unmoved and untouched ourselves because you know it's tough that it's a difficult a journey to take but it is the it involves the pain of healing and the presence and love of jesus christ it is the place where we must go to deal with the grief that the grieved heart that we may have and the embittered heart that we must that we may have to deal with that before God. And we see that very much in the psalm because it's not just a psalm which allows the expression of almost giving up completely the, Christ, the, the, the faith, the covenantal faith of the fathers and the personal faith that Asaph had. But uh, it's a recognition uh, that there is an answer to that for us in our lives. And that's very significant. It's very important. When I tried to understand all this, verse 16, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. It's, it's, it's looking uh, at the whole problem with a different perspective, now with a spiritual perspective. And he's looked at it just as we would look at other people in, in a kind of envious way. 
but it's this the perspective of looking at it through the prism of of the truth and of God and for us with Calvary uh, that great perspective that changes everything for him and it's interesting because he uses the same slippery terminology but he changes it he said my feet in verse 2 had almost slipped I'd nearly lost my foothold but then in verse 18 he sees those who are not uh, believers who don't trust in God who have gone their own way who have abandoned truth who who no longer believe surely you place them on slippery ground and he sees that actually it's something different that is the reality he sees that there is a terrible uh, future for those who maybe in the short term have life easy, who aren't in a spiritual battle, who seem to be happy in their pursuit of wealth, who are not taken to account for their violence, and yet uh, they have a desperate future away from God and Christ. And he realized and he recognized that his only hope, his only future, as ours, is my heart, my flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This isn't a kind of a psalm talking about self-help. It's not saying, you know, get, get your act together. So come on, uh, chivying people up and saying, get your heart right. You know, who can do that? Who can do that spiritually? It's tremendous guilt comes on us if we feel we have to put ourselves right spiritually and get our own act together but here we're reminded that God himself is the strength of his heart and his portion and that's where our hope and that's where our freedom and that's where our recovery lies as believers and his um the the change came from him when he entered the sanctuary of God and I understood their final destiny so it was in the presence of God And can I say, uh, because we're going to enlarge this a little bit beyond the Old Testament temple, you know, the sanctuary of God, the place where God was uh, condescended to be in the presence of his covenant people, in the Holy of Holies. You know that uh, the Ark of the Covenant was there and God uh, condescended to dwell with his people in the Holy of Holies and he would be with them, they would be his people, he would be their God. And so it's, he's saying, he's not saying when I went to church. He's not saying when I just went to a building. He's saying, I went to the place where God was, where God promises to be with his people. And let's take that out of the shadow of the Old Testament at different levels and remind us that uh, the New Testament description of that would be different uh, for us as Christians. We remember, because we were singing about it uh, in the power of the cross, um, what happened when Christ died on the cross was the curtain of the Holy of Holies was ripped in two from, I'm going from bottom, to, it was actually ripped two from top to bottom. A uh, miraculous act of God uh, opening up direct access into the presence of God and into the fellowship of God. And uh, therefore the, the temple in the New Testament, it's not this building, it's my heart, As a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in my heart, your heart. But also, together, the people of God is is the foundation, is the building of God, 
is the body of Christ, is the temple, is, is what he has built, is the kingdom. And so if you broaden this uh, to with New Testament eyes, we find that his healing began as he returned to God's presence and I believe to the people of God's presence. You know, one of the things we do most easily when we're struggling as Christians in our hearts is to distance ourselves from God's people. Now, maybe that will be because we've distanced ourselves from God first, or it may be the other way around. But there's an important uh, spiritual reality for us that strength and wholeness it comes from the company of God's people and the worship of God's people. Don't, Paul says to the church, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Now, I'm sure lots of you dragged your feet coming tonight. Oh, man, I could do without this tonight. But I hope, and very often we'll hear that, uh, maybe even more particularly, say on a Wednesday night or something, we come together. I really couldn't be bothered coming out. But having been with God's people and prayed together and worshipped together, you come away saying, God fed my soul. And I've seen things from a different perspective because God has ordained that. You know, it's not, it's not about just ritualistic living. And it's not just about going through the motions of coming along to church. He has ordained praise. He's ordained that we come and we are fed by that, by by. Uh, the mutual encouragement of sitting shoulder to shoulder with one another and worshiping God, it changes our perspective and also it reminds us of the presence of God among us and in our hearts. And so we enlarge what he says here about coming to the sanctuary of God and it reminds us of our uh, wider responsibility to come into Christ's presence and, of course, to return primarily to the cross. That's why we've given us the sacrament, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which takes us back not to Bethlehem. It doesn't take us to the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't take us to the money changing in the temple. It takes us to the cross because the cross is the place where we begin to understand secularism and unbelief and spirituality and puts it in its rightful place so that we're not just kind of treading water and going through the motions and thinking it doesn't really matter. The cross gives our faith a great sharpness because we begin to see what has happened there. Not some mystical amulet that we stick somewhere and not not just the facts of the cross, but the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which reminds us uh, of this immeasurably great act of love and the great cost that was paid to release us and to free us from living a life without him. And isn't it ironic that we spend a lot of our lives singing about the cross and about the Savior and about being Christians and yet much of the time we're wanting to go back to where we were before we were Christians. And sneakily sinning, we think God will not see us. And loving the things that cost him the immeasurable price of salvation. And so we find that the cross uh, 
reminds us of our own relentless selfishness and pride and sin and points us to the great and glorious uh, grace that sets us free and gives us a different perspective and reminds us of one further very important thing is that those who are not Christ's have a destiny that is unspeakably bad. Too hard almost to mention. We don't speak about separation from God easily and we don't speak about hell easily. I don't struggle because it's so unspeakably awful. But we, we need to recognize that to be apart from God it leaves us spiritually in a dreadful place. And when we lose sight of that, we will lose sight of the cross itself. The cross will have no meaning. You know, a, a God who nail, was nailed to a tree will be meaningless unless we understand that that price had to be paid, unless we understand that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God individually and will either be covered in the righteousness of Christ, which is uh, what Asaph came to recognize, or will, it will be indeed um, the most terrible of all days. So he returned to God, and in returning to God, uh, he knew healing and renewal. And I think I mentioned this at the very beginning, and just before we, we finish, um, this psalm and this journey which the psalmist takes, it takes us deep into his soul and into his character, even though we don't know him. And it's brutally honest, and uh, we thank God for Asaph and for his honesty. Can you imagine that happening today? Uh, God coming and speaking to someone and saying, expose the absolute backsliddenness of your heart. Write it in poetry and let it become a song and, and help people to see how difficult it is. And this is a leader in the church. And I think what's tremendously important for us to recognize from a psalm like this is the importance of being like that with one another. As, as I said earlier, uh, our Christianity needs to move beyond... Um, shallow religiosity. It really does. Both corporately and individually. You know, let God in Christ take a grip of your selfish, greedy, proud heart. And I'm looking in the mirror when I'm saying that and deal with it. And that is, uh, that is where we will find the heart of Christianity as we take time to let God's light shine in the darkness, not of other people's souls, but of your soul and of my soul. To deal with the... Okay, uh, Asaph was really personal. I'll be very personal for a minute. The longer you go on in the Christian... The longer I've gone on in the Christian life, the darker and the more selfish I recognize myself to be. Self, self-centered to the nth degree and it leaves you exposed and helpless unless you take it to the living God um, 
there's that great sense in which we, it is a painful place to be until we deal with it and allow him to heal us. But it's like all of these things, isn't it? Unless we root out uh, the sin, unless we deal with that, unless we expose that, unless we allow his, uh, his, his great uh, healing power to deal with that, then we, we will remain spiritual pygmies. We will remain very small. We will not grow. We will not develop. We will not mature. And that is an intensely personal thing. But it also is a corporate reality in that we need one another to do that. To pot with just being a Christian on your own and to pot with just giving up the, the stiff upper lip and saying everything's fine. Be honest with a core of people that will challenge you and to whom you will be accountable and who will expose sometimes the sins of your heart and likewise uh, them to you and you to them in a loving and gracious and humble way uh, so that there's a reality about our Christianity here that can only come from him. And then lastly, very briefly, we see that, and the great thing about these Psalms is that uh, it goes full circle and there's renewed desire in his life uh, as he recognizes uh, whose he is and uh, who he serves. Yet I'm always with you. Hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You take me into glory. Whom I have in heaven on earth. That there's nothing I desire besides you. So in this space of a short time, he's come a huge journey. And his desires, his heart has changed. And his foundation has changed. And his foot uh, hold has changed. And he knows a new intimacy in his heart. You hold me by your right hand. This is the covenant Old Testament God. This is a great Yahweh of the Old Testament. And Asaph here says, you hold me by your hand. He's like a dad. He's like a loving uh, father who uh, leads and guides him. And there's this great intimacy and closeness to him, that belonging, that love. This is not a cold religious relationship he has. This is an intimate spiritual relationship with his heavenly father that uh, is what we were created for. In a manly, in a womanly way, we're created for this relationship with the living God in a spiritual family where he is completely trustworthy and where he is completely protective and where he leads us because he knows uh, where we need to go even when we don't. And so there's that move from intimacy into guidance. You guide me with your, your counsel and afterwards you take me into glory. The counsel of God. You know, we, we can't grow and develop and mature and know intimacy without counsel. In other words, without his truth. But it's not about just fuzzy, warm feelings. It's about being guided in his counsel. And his counsel, if because he's God, it will always take us places we don't want to go. If your God always takes you where you want to go, he's not God, he's an idol. He's someone you've made up. You've, you've unwrapped him in a Christmas present, but he's not the living God because the living God will always lead us where we don't necessarily want to go because he knows better and because he knows everything and he sees the end of the road and we can't. And so this is the kind of God we have who guides us by his counsel, by his advice, by his word, by his truth, which is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. 
and that encapsulates our emotions and our minds as we sit at his feet. We have to be doing that. We have to be open to his word. It can't just be something that is a passing phase or fad with us. It must be that we recognize uh, the guidance that he gives us and the power of that. And of course, it's uh, intimacy and guidance and uh, that great exclusive love, you know, whom have I in the heavens? Uh, no one, uh, nothing I desire beside you. Can you see the great change? He was desiring everything but God. And I think a lot of us, including myself, are in that place sometimes, aren't we? We desire everything but God. Many other reasons we will not come into his presence because we desire everything but God. And here he's come around to desiring nothing but him. And uh, there's this reality, a living reality, that has transformed his life. And he is seeing clearly uh, for maybe the first time in a while. And he's left with that reality that there are those who are far away from God. I don't think that is something that um, he's careless about. I think that's something uh, that he is uh, indifferent to. But he knows for him, as for me, it is good to be near God. And that's the only place that we can actually be of help to those who are far away. You know, we talk about coming near to people and building relationships and uh, coming alongside them. And all these things are hugely important. But the most important thing for our burdened concern for the lost, for our brothers and sisters, for our mothers and fathers, for our neighbors, our colleagues, the most important thing for us, for them, is that we stay near to God. You know, sometimes you'll say, well, I'll kind of go down their road just to come alongside them. That will not work. We need to be near to God in order to be of any use for them. And if we don't desire God, a sure thing, none of our friends are going to desire him either, are they? And so our task is not to see that the other Christians are near God, although we want that, of course. Uh, that's not our primary task. Our primary task is to make sure we are near to God. Our personal responsibility, that is what is good. Uh, make the sovereign Lord your refuge. And recognize that that is the place where our desire will be, will blossom. And that's really what we long for, isn't it? A desire for God uh, and a blossoming spiritually as we allow him uh, near our hearts to change and move us. And uh, if you're not a Christian tonight, please take note of these words. They're very solemn. They are God's truth. And uh, to be out of Christ, whatever it is that is attracting you and keeping you from him, is a terrifying place to be. Please do consider the truth of God's word and his uh, invitation to you to come to Calvary. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you on this summer's evening that we can 
uh, find in the Psalms written centuries ago absolute association that we know what the psalmist is speaking about. We've been there. Our feet have almost slipped. And uh, we pray that we would not allow that in our experience because you have given us the Psalms and other areas of Scripture to uh, guide us, to counsel us, to warn us, to drive us back to your wonderful heart, to your protection, to your fatherly care, uh, to your warmth and to your protection. And help us, we pray, uh, this evening to make time and have time uh, to do soul business with you and not to allow the myriad of time-consuming activities uh, keep us from that. May it not be that we will spend hours and hours on other activities that will keep us from these moments that we must, that these concentrated, um, rich moments of spiritual fellowship which will renew our perspective and vision. Help us, we pray, and guide us and forgive us, and may we know freshness and desire and newness in our Christian lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.